Good morning. As the kids make their way out, with the rest of you please make your way to the Gospel of Luke? Okay, the Gospel of Luke. Last week we began our study of the Gospel of Luke with an introduction and a look at some of the background information regarding this particular book of the Bible. Uh, we looked at the who, what, the when, the where, the why, the how uh, of the book before jumping into the first four verses uh, of the book uh, where Luke gives really an explanation of his method and his purpose in writing this gospel account. Uh, well, today we're going to pick up where we left off in our text, continuing to make our way through chapter 1. So our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. I've titled our time together this morning, Breaking the Silence, okay? Breaking the Silence, okay? I'm going to ask you guys to please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read through our text from beginning all the way down to the end. And uh, my Bible, I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different Bible, I want to encourage you to do your best to follow along. Okay, Luke, uh, after explaining his method of how he put together this gospel account and then stating his purpose, he starts off with an unexpected birth announcement that really would shock all who heard it. So let's dive in and see what he has to say. Luke writes in verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will churn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to churn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias, and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. 
But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to uh, gather here this morning to sing your praises, to sing of your goodness, your faithfulness, your love, Lord. Um, And now, Lord, to turn and, and submit ourselves to your word. Lord, I pray that we would be receptive to all that your word has to say to us today. And I pray that you would use your word to mold us and shape us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak. Lord, I trust and I believe with all my heart that you want to speak to us today. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, as we've opened our Bibles, I pray that we will open our hearts as well, that we might receive from you all that you intend. Lead and guide us, we ask this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. You may have a seat. You know, you would think that since Luke is writing a detailed account of the life of Jesus, that he would begin his account with a birth announcement regarding Jesus. Um, But that is not what happens here in our text. Luke begins not with the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, but of John the Baptist. And the reason that that is so is because it was necessary that before the Christ could come, that God send one to go before the Lord, one to prepare the way for the Lord, and that glorious ministry would be given to John the Baptist. So our text begins with some important background information that we want to take note of. Verse 5 begins with giving us a time marker of sorts, letting us know what uh, that the events recorded for us here in chapter 1 occurred during the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, the Bible mentions a number of different Herods. Okay? This particular Herod was known as Herod the Great. And history tells us that he reigned from 37 to 4 B.C. And while he may have been a great builder, he was not a great leader nor a great king. Though he liked to be referred to as a king over the Jews, the Jews never accepted him as their own king. Well, for one reason, he wasn't Jewish. Um, He was actually from... uh, the line of Esau. He was an Edomite, okay, the brother of Jacob. And so that was always something that the Jews really did not like and care for. Um, on top of that, he was notorious for his jealousy and his cruelty and his paranoia. Uh, he was always su- suspicious of those around him, and he thought that they were trying to usurp his authority and his throne. He would even have his own wife and kids murdered because he thought that they were trying to make a move against him, a coup, which they later come to find out was not true, but you know he didn't care because that's how 
paranoid this guy was. Okay? Of course, this is the same Herod who would later order the killing of all the infants in Bethlehem in fear of the one who was said to be born king of the Jews. In Matthew chapter 2, we read about that. So understanding who is on the throne at this time, the kind of person that he was, it lets us know a little bit about the overall feel within the area. The Jews, listen, they were not happy. They were not happy to have an Edomite king ruling over them. They weren't necessarily in bondage. They weren't being held in slavery, but they weren't exactly free either. Herod wasn't their king. He was someone set up by the Roman authorities to exercise control over them and to exercise control over the area. Herod was in place to make sure that the best interests of Rome were kept at the forefront and that nothing happened that would disturb the Pax Romana, okay? uh, the Roman peace, okay? which was only peaceful if you listened and obeyed to Rome. Okay? Uh, if you didn't, it wasn't peaceful. <laughs> well, The Jews, they felt oppressed. They longed for the day that their long-awaited Messiah from the line of David would come and establish his kingdom in the land, kicking out the likes of Herod and the Roman authorities. And so, in the rest of verses 5 through 7, we are introduced really to the main characters of our account this morning. We begin with a certain priest named Zacharias. We're told that Zacharias was of the division of Abijah. Abijah was one of the leaders of the sons of Aaron that was part of the divisions of the priest recorded for us in First Chronicles uh, chapter 24. Um, we're also introduced to Zacharias's wife, who herself was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Now, we are given a lot of information about these two in verses 6 and 7. That is important for us to note in regard to the overall flow of our account. We're told that both Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous before God. This tells us something important about these two. It lets us know that they were a man and a woman of faith. You see, a righteous standing before God comes through faith. Okay? This is not just a New Testament theology. Okay? This has always been the truth since the beginning. Genesis tells us about Abraham, who's considered the father of faith, that he believed in the Lord, and he, referring to the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. How was Abraham designated as righteous? Because he believed in the Lord. You see, our righteous standing before God doesn't have anything to do with what we do but what we believe and who we believe upon. Now, not only were they righteous before God, but we're told that they walked in obedience. That's what it means when it says they walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They were obedient to adhere to all the commands and ordinances that were left from Moses through the law. It does not mean that they were perfect. But that when they did sin, when they did fall short, they followed through with the prescribed sacrifices and ordinances that were laid out within the scriptures. You see, Zacharias and Elizabeth were obedient to the word of God. 
they not only knew the word as priest, but they lived according to it. The end of verse 6 says they were blameless. Now, this probably speaks more of their relationship with others. There was nothing anyone around them could say about them that would find them at fault. And so we understand that not only did they live an upright life before the Lord, but they also lived an upright life before men. These two are examples of wonderful servants of the Lord. However, we read in verse 7 that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Though this couple loved the Lord, they lived a life of faith, they walked in obedience, and they were blameless before their fellow man, we find that God had chosen to keep Elizabeth's womb barren. Now, um, barrenness in that day and age, it was actually seen by many as a curse from the Lord. If a woman was found to be barren, she was unable to have children, it was a great shame upon her. And it would uh, cause some to even begin to think that, well, there must be something wrong. This woman, she, she must be hiding some kind of secret sin, and, and that's why God has not blessed her womb. It was a horrible condition to be in, one that came with a lot of shame, a, a lot of dishonor and reproach. Now, on top of the fact that Elizabeth was barren, we're told that both Zacharias and Elizabeth were well advanced in years. Okay? Because of their age, no doubt they had lost hope that they would ever have the possibility of bearing their own children. It was a lost cause, a hopeless endeavor. That ship had sailed, okay? and, and there seemed to be nothing that really could be done about it. Now, as we consider Zacharias and Elizabeth and their account, what we do know about them, I imagine, no doubt, that these two servants of the Lord spent countless hours in prayer, seeking the Lord and asking for his divine favor upon her womb. And I'm sure they had come to the Lord over and over again, asking the Lord, pleading with him to open her womb, to grant them the blessing of a child. And yet it seemed to them that the Lord was not listening, okay? that he was not paying attention to them, that their prayers were falling upon deaf ears as if the Lord didn't care to hear from them at all. You know, sometimes we can feel like that in our own lives. When we too continually come before the Lord in prayer and we feel like we aren't getting the answers that we're searching after. Sometimes we can feel like God doesn't hear our prayers or that He isn't listening or that He simply doesn't care. And we allow doubt to build up in our hearts and in our minds and it really does a number on us. Listen, in those seasons and in those times, we must remember the promises of the Scriptures. God hears our prayers, okay, when we cry out 
to him. Psalm 34, 17 declares, The righteous cries out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 116, verse 1 attests, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. Proverbs 15:29 promises us, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Even in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.12 describes how the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. You see, when we cry out to the Lord in prayer, when we lift our voices to Him, seeking an audience with Him, He is there and He listens intently to our prayers and He answers our prayers prayers now he may not answer them the way that we want or in the manner in which we pray god may say no to our prayers that's still an answer god may say not right now to our prayers and that's still an answer god may say wait and that's an answer god may say yes and that is an answer God answers our prayers. Listen, do not allow yourself to be tempted to believe for one second that God does not hear your prayer. Heavenly Father, He loves to hear from His children. He loves for us to come to Him in prayer. And so we want to be persistent in our prayers, continuing in uh, knowing that He hears and that He answers our prayers. Well, let's continue on in our account. We'll read about how God's going to answer the prayers of this godly couple. Read with me verses 8 through 10. It says, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. We're going to pause right there. What we have described before us here in verses 8 through 10 is something that would take place each and every day there at the temple in Jerusalem. Each day there was a morning and evening sacrifice that was part of the Jews' worship of the Lord. Now, there were a lot of things that would transpire there at the temple throughout the days, and the priests were in charge of facilitating all of that ministry. Now, by this time, it is estimated that there were anywhere from 18,000 to 20,000 people who traced their lineage back through Aaron and the priesthood. Far too many to serve at the temple all at once. And so it was established back actually during the days of King David that the priest would be broken up into 24 different divisions based upon the sons of Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, and that each division would be tasked with serving at the temple for two weeks out of the year. Now we're told in verse 8 that it was that time of year for the division of Zacharias that Zacharias belonged to to serve as priest before God. Now, there's 18 to 20,000 divided into 24 different groups. There's still, you know, almost 1,700 to 1,000 people within each of those divisions. 
And so even within the divi- specific divisions, there were still too many people for them all to serve at once. And so they would then draw lots to find out who amongst the division would actually serve and in what capacity. And so we're told in verse 9 that it just so happened that the lot fell upon Zacharias for him to be the one to burn the incense upon the golden altar of incense within the holy temple. Now, this is not in the Bible, but according to the Mishnah, which is basically the uh, recorded oral traditions that were passed down from the religious leaders, the opportunity to offer the incense upon the altar during the morning or evening sacrifice was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was considered a great honor. And many priests would serve all of their days without ever getting the opportunity to serve the Lord in this capacity. If you did get selected, you got one shot, and that was it. You would never do that again. Um, You know, it was that great of a privilege, that awesome of a responsibility and an incredible blessing, okay? And so this was a very, very big deal, a huge honor uh, for Zacharias to be selected to be the one to burn the incense uh, there at the uh, altar of incense. You know, I was thinking about this incredible blessing for Zacharias, what it meant to him, and it just reminded me of something. You know, serving the Lord and having an opportunity to minister to your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, it truly is an honor, and it is a privilege. It is an incredible blessing. It is a blessing to serve the Lord. It is an honor. We should see our service to the Lord in such a manner. You know, some of you maybe volunteer for our Sunday school, and you think, oh, yeah, I'm just volunteering for the Sunday school, helping them out, watch the kids, and teach them a Bible study. You know, listen, that is a blessing. That is an honor. Okay? You are representing the Lord to these children. You are being His hands and feet. It is a, it is a great privilege to, to serve the Lord and to serve His people. You know, Paul reminds us of the words of our Lord and Savior in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It's Jesus who says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, we want to come to church and want to give, not just to, to receive. Okay? We want to be active participants, not passive recipients. And I want to encourage you all to be active in your service to the Lord, to be involved in, in ministering to His people, because there are a lot of areas that uh, here at Calvary where you could be used. Okay? If you're looking for uh, a spot to serve or an area to help out, let us know. We've got all sorts of areas you can help out with. You know, We recently kicked up a a hospitality ministry, and we're baking goods, and we're making stuff. Some people might say, I'd like to bake. Hey, that's an easy way to serve. We're looking for people to help greet people, just to welcome them. Uh, we're putting flags out. We've got a parking lot. We've got children's ministry new needs. Maybe you like loving on babies. We've got babies, okay? Uh, we've got areas all over that you can serve. Uh, media, sound, worship, um, prayer. Lots and lots of areas to get plugged in. It is a blessing. It is a privilege. It is an honor to serve the Lord. And I, we want to see as many people enjoy that privilege and honor as possible. 
Now, in regard to Zacharias and his service at the temple, the way that this would normally happen is that the worshipers would gather together at the temple before the Lord in the morning and evening sacrifices. Lots would be used to determine who would cleanse the altar, who would prepare the fire, who would offer the sacrifices upon the altar, who would sprinkle the blood on the various uh, instruments and elements. Uh, And of course, there was the lot that was to determine uh, who would offer the incense, as we already mentioned. Now, three priests would be involved in preparing and offering the incense. One would take the burning coals from the altar, uh, or the sacrifice, and they would transfer them to the altar uh, of incense, okay, and prepare the, the fire, in a sense. Another would arrange the incense so that it would be ready to be placed upon the altar. And the third, final person would be the one that actually got to take the incense put it upon the fire, and then wave the the incense before the Lord. That is the lot that fell upon Zacharias. He was the one that was going to be able to light the incense and wave it before the Lord. And so what would happen is as the worshipers would gather around, the three priests, they would enter into the holy temple. Now this in and of itself is an amazing experience to enter into the holy place. You see, the altar of incense was right before the huge veil that separated the holy place within the temple from the place that was referred to as the most holy place or the holy of holies, where the presence of the Lord was said to dwell. None but the high priest were permitted to enter into the most holy place, and he was only allowed to do so on one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. And so all that separated Zacharias from the presence of the Lord and the Holy of Holies was this thick curtain right beyond the altar of incense, which was right before it. And so we have to remember and and understand the magnitude of of him entering into this place. What an awesome and, and quite fearful thing to be that close to the presence of the Lord again. An amazing opportunity for Zacharias. Well, normally what would happen is that the priest would light the incense, lift it, wave it before the Lord. The smoke from the incense would then begin to rise and to ascend into the heavens. Um, And as the people on the outside would see the smoke rising, they too would join in prayer. And the idea was that their prayers were going to be lifted up with the uh, smoke of the incense, and these would rise up into the heaven, into the very throne room of God, and come before Him as a sweet-smelling aroma. The prayers of His people and this sweet-smelling incense. All very beautiful. And so... Uh, when that was done, the priest would finish burning the incense. He would exit the holy temple. He'd come before the people, and then he would pronounce the priestly blessing upon all who were gathered there in worship. Uh, the priestly blessing is actually recorded for us in number six. You guys have probably all heard of it before. The Lord commanded Moses to instruct the priest to pray this prayer over the children of Israel. In Numbers chapter six, it's recorded the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was the the prayer that the priests would pray over the people. And then the people would actually respond uh, and they would state, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel from everlasting 
to everlasting. And then they would sing the psalm of the day and they would complete the morning sacrifices. And so that was the finishing of the service. And so that was what was supposed to happen. But let's read and see what actually took place that day. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As Zacharias enters into the holy place, he begins to light the incense and offer up his prayers. We're told in verse 11, that an angel appeared. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And of course, when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. Your translation may read that he was terrified. He was shaken. Okay, The idea is that he was gripped with fear. Obviously, this wasn't something that Zacharias was expecting to happen. Okay. Now, I'm not sure what Zacharias was expecting, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't an appearance of an angelic being, okay? Perhaps he thought it would be a special time of communion with the Lord. I think that's a strong possibility. Maybe he thought he would, you know, uh, it would be something where he would be able to sense the presence of the Lord just on the other side of that veil, maybe as they prayed, you know, whatever it could have been. I don't know. Maybe he was just nervous. He didn't want to mess up, you know, he's got this great responsibility, so he's focused on making sure he does everything right. Pretty sure there could have been a number of things that he was thinking could potentially happen. This wasn't one of them, okay? This was not one of them. The angel declares to Zacharias, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jehovah has been gracious. Or put more simply, John. The name John means Jehovah has been gracious. Gracious indeed. This proclamation of the angel Gabriel to Zacharias is a momentous occasion. Something that we can easily lose sight of if we don't understand the backdrop of what has been happening for the last few centuries. The last recorded message from the Lord was given by the prophet of Malachi. For 400 years, there has not been any recorded word from the Lord. There has been seemingly silence on God's behalf. But all of a sudden, here right before the altar of incense, that silence is finally broken. A message from the Lord is being declared to Zacharias. God's word is going forth once again. God is once again speaking to his people. Now, we don't know exactly what Zacharias prayed on that day while he was before the Lord. All we do know is that God showed up and answered his prayer. Some, based upon uh, the immediate context, suggest that he must have prayed for a son. 
And, you know, because the angel declared that God had heard his prayer and was going to give him a son. Others suggest that perhaps Zacharias wouldn't have been so focused upon personal prayers at this time and that it was more likely he would have been more focused upon the national scene, interceding on behalf of the people and the nation. Perhaps he prayed for the coming of the Messiah, for the Lord to send the long-awaited king that would come and sit upon the throne of David and establish an earthly kingdom, removing the Romans and their oppression over them. Maybe he prayed for both. And God was answering both. We don't know. We can't say for certain. The angel declared that Zacharias would have joy and gladness. This would be great news. Not only would Zacharias have great joy and gladness, but the angel said that many would rejoice at his birth. This was big news. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're going to have a son. It's going to be reason to rejoice, reason to celebrate. But why? Verse 15 tells us five things about the life of John and what it will be like and why his birth will be such a joyous occasion. We're told that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Okay, this means that God had something extra special for him to do. God had a specific and special plan for his life. A unique calling was upon the life of this child. The angel also told Zacharias that he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Many people believe that this perhaps is an allusion to John taking the vow of a Nazarite. Uh, We read about that in Numbers chapter 6 as well. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, you can look it up. But basically the vow of a Nazarite was a special uh, dedication where you you dedicate your life completely to God and his service. It involved abstaining from drinking wine and similar drink, uh, as well as abstaining from anything from the vine whatsoever. You couldn't eat grapes or raisins, anything that came from the vine off limits. Uh, it was, um, you'd also, part of the vow was not to cut your hair and to not touch anything dead and defile yourself. And uh, it was basically a life of consecration and dedication to the Lord. We're told that the baby John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. From his mother's womb. Now, prior to the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, filled the disciples, we read about that in Acts chapter 2. Most of you are probably familiar with it. You've read it before. Before that uh, was made available uh, to the Holy Spirit, uh, excuse me, before the Holy Spirit was made available to us through faith, the work of the Holy Spirit played out a little different. In the Old Testament, we read of instances when God would move powerfully upon a life or an individual by filling them with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it would just be for a temporary action, a temporary time. The Holy Spirit would come upon them to do a particular work. Okay? Uh, now, in the New Testament, okay, when the Holy Spirit comes in us, He's in us and we're sealed and He stays with us. It's a different. Okay? And so in the Old Testament, we read of these different instances. And that's what we have here in the life of John the Baptist. He would have a special indwelling and empowering and enabling of the Holy Spirit to do what God had called him to do. Now, for us today, the gift of the Holy Spirit is actually made available to us through simple faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when we 
place our faith in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, and we become born again, we know that the Scriptures tell us the Holy Spirit will come and He will take residence within us. Our bodies will become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that same power that was made available to John the Baptist for his very special service to the Lord is actually made available to each and every one of us as well. We too can be indwelt by, empowered by, and enabled by the same Holy Spirit that filled and empowered John the Baptist when we surrender our life to Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 16, the angel told Zacharias that John would churn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That word churn, it speaks of a change in belief, a change in heart. As John comes on scene, he will stir within the people of Israel a great churning back to the Lord. A great revival will take place. People's hearts will be churned back to the Lord. And and we're going to see evidence of this revival work when we get to Luke chapter 3. We're going to read more about John's public ministry at that time. But for now, we're going to continue on in our text. The last thing that the angel says is very important. He says that, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then basically he breaks down what that looks like. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Remember how I told you the last recorded word from the Lord was over 400 years prior to this point. Okay, The very last chapter of the Old Testament is Malachi chapter 4. And it deals with the coming of the day of the Lord. Okay, If you'd like to, to turn there with me, you can. Uh, we'll have it up on the screen there, but if you'd like to read it for yourself, it's just a few pages to the left. Malachi chapter 4. Uh, you got Luke, Mark, Matthew, then you'll hit Malachi. Okay, Right there. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi writes in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. And so the day of the Lord, it will be a terrible thing for the enemies of the Lord, the proud and the wicked. But for those who fear the Lord, it will be a day of reckoning, a day where God's people will rise up in victory over the wicked, and they will go forth in great strength. They will trample over the proud and the wicked. Verse 4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And he says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will churn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And that is the last words recorded for us in the Old Testament. 
The last known recorded word from the Lord was before God comes back. On the day of the Lord, he will send Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers, lest God come and strike the earth with a curse. The idea is quite simple, okay? Before God comes back to bring judgment upon the proud and the wicked, to bring a curse upon them, God is going to send the prophet Elijah to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. When Elijah shows up, he will do a work that will remind the people of this very promise, that the Lord is coming back. And so this would excite all of the Jews. Fathers would be reminded of this great promise. They would share it with their children. Likewise, children would remember this promise and share it with their parents. There would be this overall joy. This is what we've been waiting for. There would be a great excitement in the air and great anticipation for God's soon return, for God to come and wipe out the proud and the wicked and to exalt his children who have remembered and obeyed his word. You see, when the angel declared to Zacharias that his son, John, would go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, he would have immediately thought about this verse. He would have immediately thought about this promise. This was what the Jews have been waiting for. This is it. The day of the Lord is coming. God is going to come back. He's going to wipe out the proud and the wicked. He's going to bless his children mightily, using them to wipe out the wicked that oppress them. God's kingdom is at hand. John's going to be used to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, looking back, We have the blessing of hindsight. We realize that the Lord's coming would actually consist of two separate events. His first coming when the Lord uh, came was when he came as the suffering servant, as the sacrificial lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world and establish a spiritual kingdom. But there's a second coming that we still wait for when the Lord will come, not as a suffering servant, but he will come as a conquering king. He will not come as a sacrificial lamb, but he will come as a roaring lion. Okay, And he will come against a Christ-rejecting world, and he will establish a physical kingdom here on earth. It will be for a thousand years, we're told. You see, the people didn't understand that there would be two separate comings of the Lord, Two days of the Lord, if you will. And since there would be two comings of the Lord, there will also be two comings of Elijah. Okay? And and that's where some of the confusion comes in when it comes to John the Baptist and Elijah. As we get through the Gospels, we're going to read. People are going to come to him. Hey, are you Elijah? Are are you not Elijah? And some people are going to say, yeah, he is Elijah. Other people say, no, he's not Elijah. There was some confusion. John is not Elijah but he comes in the same spirit and power of Elijah. John is not going to be the complete fulfillment of this prophecy, for the Lord will once again send Elijah before the day of the Lord when he comes to judge this world at his second coming. Many believe that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses that are mentioned during the book of Revelation in chapter 11, who will prophesy for three and a half years before the Lord comes. They will prophesy these two witnesses with all sorts of signs and wonders and miracles. And, and many believe that Elijah will be one of those 
witnesses. I believe that it will be Elijah. The Bible doesn't say who it will be. They're unnamed, but I believe Elijah will be one of them. And Elijah will fulfill this prophecy at that time. So what we have before us in this message of the angel is God breaking his 400 years of silence and picking back up right where he left off, telling Zacharias that the coming of the Lord is at hand, that his son John is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, preparing the way for the Lord. So how exciting. What amazing news. What an awesome message to hear from the Lord. But unfortunately... Zacharias wouldn't be able to share that message immediately, (laughs) at least not with his own lips. Let's continue. Verse 18, it says, And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. Zacharias' response to this amazing and glorious good news was to doubt the Lord, to doubt his word, to not believe the angel. Zacharias asked, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife, very smartly, he says, my wife is advanced in years. He doesn't say she's old, okay? (laughs) Learn that, okay? I'm very old and she's very well advanced in years, okay? Very smart man, okay? that word no in the Greek is the word gnosko. Okay? It's the same phrase that's recorded in the Septuagint that Abraham used when he asked a similar question in Genesis 15.8. God had told him that he was going to give him the land as an inheritance. And Gen- uh, Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? It carries the idea of knowing and understanding when it comes to belief. You could actually reword it, how can I believe this? Okay? Not just how can I know this, but how can I believe this? Zacharias' response was, how can I believe this? It's impossible. There, there's no way this could happen. Look, I'm an old man. My wife, she's well advanced in years. You know, how, how could this be? I, I just, I can't believe it. Zacharias didn't believe the word from the Lord and he wanted Gabriel to give him something else that could help him to know how this would come to pass. He was seeking after some sort of sign, some sort of external thing to prove that this would come to pass. Gabriel's response was to reiterate to Zacharias who he was. He was Gabriel, the very angel who stands before the presence of God and was sent by the Lord to declare this good news. And because of unbelief, Gabriel was going to answer Zacharias' request for a sign. The sign was going to be that Zacharias was going to be mute and not able to speak until the day this word came to fulfillment and John was born to Elizabeth and Zacharias. I think about that and I think how sad How sad for Zacharias to be given such an amazing 
message. Such a powerful word from the Lord. And then not be able to speak it to anyone for at least nine months. He wanted a sign. And he got one. You know, as I consider Zacharias and his situation, I can sympathize with him. I can understand. I feel like I can relate. You know, when we've prayed for something for so long and we've never heard back from the Lord, we can begin to think that it isn't possible, that there isn't uh, a way for it to happen, and it's just not going to happen. Maybe you've been praying for something for a really long time, for years. Maybe it's a loved one to come to know the Lord, and you've been praying, and you've been praying, and, and, and maybe you start to think, you know what, it's just impossible. It's not going to happen. Now, how many times did Zacharias and Elizabeth pray for the Lord to open their room while they were young adults? I imagine this was their prayer the moment they came together as a young couple, as a married couple. For years and years and years, there was seeming silence on behalf of God. Elizabeth's womb remained barren. And then when they're both old and well advanced in years, perhaps it had even become a prayer. They had even long been forgotten for the Lord to send a messenger to declare, hey, now it's going to happen. I can see how Zacharias could potentially respond this way. Was it right for him to respond this way? No, it wasn't. I'm just saying I think I think we can all relate. We often look at our own physical capabilities when it comes to whether or not we think God will answer our prayers. We often limit God to working within our own physical limitations. Instead of having his eyes upon the Lord and trusting that God is all-powerful, Zacharias had his eyes upon his own old, frail body, upon his own limitations, and upon his wife's, Elizabeth's, own limitations. We must remember the words of Jeremiah 32, verse 27, where the Lord himself declares, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God asked that question. Is there anything too hard for me? I'll, I'll let you in on the answer. The answer is no. Of course not. There's nothing that is too hard for the Lord. Jesus reminded his disciples about how certain things with men are impossible, but he tells us, but with God, all things are possible. We must remember that our God is not limited in his ability by our own inabilities. God is more than able to empower us to do the impossible. He is more than able to do the miraculous. Our God is awesome, and there is nothing too hard for Him. There is nothing impossible for Him. May we keep our eyes upon Him and His capabilities, His power, His ability, not on ourselves and our inabilities as we walk this life with him. Back to our text. Take a look at verse 21 and 22. It says, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Remember, okay, this is still in the middle of a, a worship service, okay? He's supposed to go light the incense. He does that. And then all of a sudden, he's got this interaction. Well, the people are waiting. Hey, and, and they saw the smoke rise out of the altar 
uh, and, and they prayed, and, and they're waiting for Zacharias to come out and to pronounce the priestly blessing upon them. And yet Zacharias was taking a long time. The people all began to wonder. They all began to marvel at how long he was in there. And some probably even began to fear for his very life. Perhaps he got too close to the Lord. Perhaps he did something to displease the Lord. God took his very life, maybe. It was a mystery as to what was going on. They're, uh, you know, just sitting there waiting. You know, what's, where's he at? He's already supposed to come out by now. Well, after an abnormally long time of waiting, Zacharias finally does come out but he could not perform his duty to pronounce the priestly blessing for he remained speechless. He was supposed to come out and recite Numbers 6, 24, 25, and 26 to the people. They're supposed to respond. Then they sing a song and they're done. And so they're, they're waiting for him, right? He, he comes out and he starts doing charades and beckoning to them and they're like, what in the world is going on? Right? It would have been a crazy scene. Right? You know, when we allow ourselves to be overcome with doubt and, and disbelief, oftentimes it will rob us of the joy of sharing the wonderful good news of the Lord. We instinctively, we will become more and more reserved, more and more quiet when it comes to the Lord and the things of the Lord when we allow doubt and fear and disbelief to grow in our hearts. Those who are full of faith, those who are on fire in their walk with the Lord, they will easily be uh, identified because they're the ones that are talking about the Lord, all the things about the Lord, okay? You ever get around a new believer that's just on fire, man, and they just want to talk about Jesus all the time, and it's awesome. I love it. Now, I found that there is a direct correlation between my own faith, my own walk, my own belief, and my excitement to share God's word and minister to his people. Maybe you can relate as well. Maybe there was a time in your life when you were real excited about the things of the Lord and you talked about the Lord with all the people that you came across uh, and you would always be talking about, hey man, what's God doing in your life? How can I be praying for you? Let me tell you what the Lord's doing and, and, and just exciting things. Well, when we're not walking with the Lord, when we're allowing doubt or disbelief or just, you know, being distracted, we get together with other people and we say, you know, so, you know, did you see the game last week? Or, you know, weather is really nice lately. You know, we just kind of talk about stuff that really doesn't matter. I found that there's this correlation when I allow the enemy to get me down, to get me distracted, I start to look at circumstances, situations that seem to suggest that God isn't at work. I find it impacts my ability to infect, effectively communicate the message of the Lord. But on the other hand, when I'm living in faith and we're taking steps of faith and I'm trusting God for great things because he is a great God, okay, I find a renewed energy and a passion to share with others the things that God is showing me, the things that God is doing. I want to tell people about it. I get excited about it. I hope that you would be excited about what God is doing in your heart and in your life and you would be telling people about it. You see, when we keep our eyes upon the Lord and we keep trusting in Him despite the circumstances, despite situations, we often will find that we are more apt to speak of the Lord and the things of the Lord with one another. When we get our eyes off of the Lord, our focus seems to veer away from the Lord, and we'll just talk about things that really don't matter. 
My hope, my prayer for us is that our focus would remain upon Him and that we would continually share the joy and the excitement of all the Lord is doing with those who are around us. Well, let's wrap up our study here. I know we're getting a little bit late here. Forgive me for that. Final verses 23 through 25. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zacharias's time of service came to an end. He went home. He probably did his best to communicate to his wife the amazing things that the angel declared to him. Probably had to write it all out. Um, Elizabeth conceived. She hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You know, as I mentioned before, barrenness, it was seen as a great dishonor, a, a reproach among women. As Elizabeth conceived, she got away and she spent time with the Lord, praising Him, thanking Him for the looking upon her and removing the shame and the reproach that she felt among the people. And as we consider Elizabeth and her example and her life, I, I believe it reminds us of an important truth. It reminds us of the fact that the Lord sees and the Lord knows all of our hurts, all of our pains, He knows exactly where we are at. He knows exactly what we are going through. Even through those years and years of prayers where it seemed that God was not responding, God was at work. He was setting the stage for this incredible blessing. Elizabeth was going to bear a son that would prepare the way for the Lord. What a wonderful blessing and privilege for her. Something she could have never perceived on her own. Nothing she would have ever imagined possible. God had a plan and a purpose in it all. But it wasn't until much later in life, when she was well advanced in years, that she was finally able to look back and see what the Lord was doing, how He was preparing her for this miraculous work and this amazing blessing. May we take courage knowing that the same God who saw Elizabeth's pain and hurt and reproach and sorrow is the same God who is alive and at work in our very own lives today. Even when we don't understand it, even when things don't make sense, we can have the full assurance that God is at work and that He sees And that he does have a plan and a purpose. And that ultimately, one day, we will be able to look back upon it and praise him knowing that his plans and his ways were far better than anything we could have ever imagined. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this portion of scripture, Lord. Thank you for the work that you do in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would be with each one of these, your children. Lord, I pray that they would continue to trust in you, continue to seek after you all of their days. Lord, even when it sounds like or it seems like you're not answering prayer, Lord, I pray that we would continue to seek after you, that we would continue to be excited about you, continue to tell people about you. Lord, that our lives would be filled with the joy of the Lord. And Lord, that you would use us 
to share the glorious message of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the world around us. Lead us and guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.